0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be back with you. It has been a pleasure to be with you three Sundays this month. And uh, we will continue to pray for you as a church as you navigate these unusual days and uh, continue to pray certainly as you find yourself in what can be, what can be a challenging time of transition looking for a pastor. And praying that the Lord gives much wisdom and brings his man your way in due course and prepares you for that. I ask you to pray for us at Heritage College and Seminary. Uh, we got off to a great start. Um, it's wonderful to have people on campus again, students and faculty and staff in this beehive of activity and so pray for us that the Lord sustains us and continues to use us as an institution. This Friday we'll be launching a capital campaign. You might have already heard of this. I don't know. Maybe not. A capital campaign this Friday. We're going to put up a new seminary building on the property, and uh, we're raising 14 million dollars. You want to know the good news? 11 million already pledged. So we have lots to be thankful for. So a capital pa- campaign as we seek to raise just that remaining amount so that we, continue to, we can continue to serve the church in Canada from coast to coast to coast and, uh, and around the world. So please be praying for us as we will most certainly be praying for you. Now back to the book of Galatians. Three Sundays ago... Back in chapter 1, the title for the sermon, I won't ask if you remember, here it was, here it is, Delivered. That was the title for the sermon three Sundays ago in our text, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Delivered. Two Sundays ago, the title for the sermon was Crucified. And we looked in detail at chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And today we conclude, and the title for today's sermon is simply this, Adopted. Adopted. Russell Moore, in his book, wrote some years ago, Imagine for a moment that you are adopting a child. As you meet with the social worker, you are told that this 12 year old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in attempting to burn things and skin kittens alive. His father, grandfather, and great grandfather had histories of violence ranging from spousal abuse to murder. Each ended his life by suicide. Think for a moment. Would you want this child? Well, my friend, this child is you. And he is me. That is what the gospel is telling us. Our birth father has fangs. And left to ourselves, we will show that we are just as serpentine as he is. With this theme, adoption, we come to the very climax of Scripture. This is it, folks. This is the mountaintop. This is the summit. This is the peak of all that God is saying to us in Scripture. I will be your God, and you will be my people, sons of God, depraved sinners, received into the family of God. Listen closely to what the Apostle Paul declares in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that, so that, it's a purpose clause, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. All right. Three truths. Three-point sermon. Old school today. Three-point sermon. Three truths. I want to try to explain them from the text. All right. First order of business. And as we explain each... I want to answer a very simple question. The question is this, why is this so encouraging? All right, I don't know what condition you've dragged yourself here today. I don't know what's running through your mind. I don't know what the past week, past month, past year has brought your way. And I have no idea what you're facing this week. But if you're anything like me, you could use a little encouragement. Three truths that just leap off the text of Scripture. In these verses, as we have just heard them, and we want to get our minds wrapped around them because they're not the easiest truths to grasp, but we want to get them, understand them, so that we can squeeze them and derive from them such encouragement for the soul. Are you with me? I won't ask if you're against me. Are you with me? That's our ambition. That is our aim today. Here is the first truth. And don't squirm when you hear it. Here it is. Our God is triune. Oh, here we go. It's going to be heady stuff. We're going to probe the depths of theology. Yes, we are, and I make no apologies for it. Our God is wonderful. Our God is ultimately incomprehensible. We are little children standing on the east shore of Canada. We're out there, I don't know, Maritimes, PEI, somewhere. And we're standing there gazing out upon the Atlantic Ocean. And trying to comprehend God is like trying to fit the Atlantic Ocean in our little bucket. That's what we're trying to do. It is the finite... Seeking to grasp the infinite. It is our bound understanding trying to come to grips with the boundless. It is our very limited mind trying to make sense of one who is unlimited. Our God is triune. The starting point is back in chapter 3. Look at what Paul says right at the end of verse 20. God is, how many? One our God is one there is, but one God He is one in being but one being and He is the king Paul tells Timothy. He is the king eternal beyond all succession of time he knows no beginning and he knows no end he is eternal He is immortal He derives his life from himself, and he is completely dependent from his creation because he is completely separate from transcendent to the entire cosmos and created order. And Paul says there, not only is he the king eternal, the king immortal, he is the king invisible because he is pure spirit. The one who fills all things is through all things and yet is transcendent above all things. One God, one being, pure spirit. And but what does Paul now say here in our text, Galatians chapter 4? Look at what he says, the fourth verse. But when the fullness of time had come, this God, this one God, what did he do? He sent forth his Son. Now skip down to verse 6. And because you are sons, same phrase, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so we have this one God, this one being. And yet now here, Paul emphasizes these two historical events. He tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. It is the incarnation. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son. It is Pentecost. And so we have these two historical events, God sending his son and God sending forth the spirit of his son. That word send implies what? Pre-existence. You only send someone who already exists. And so we have these historical events. And what scripture is declaring is this. That these two pivotal historical events reveal eternal realities. You see the father sends the son in time. Why? Because the son proceeds eternally from the father. The Father and the Son send the Spirit in time. Why? Because the Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. God behaves in time as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Why? Because he is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in eternity. Does that hurt your brain. It's supposed to. My friend, understand this if you get little else from this. God is not like us. First mistake so many of us make. We think God is just a grown-up human being, superhuman, superhuman powers or something. God is not like us. He is a triune being. There are eternal relations within the one God One being one will one power one nature one wisdom But one God who exists eternally in three Relations the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit Now you should be asking the question. I told you it's coming. What is the question? Why is this so encouraging? Why is this so encouraging? Here's why. The answer is found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Any of you remember what we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8? Three precious words. God is love. Here's what I want us to get. That statement is meaningless unless God is triune. C.S. Lewis touched on this decades ago. He wrote, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love because there was nothing to love. This is, this is what distinguishes the God of Christianity from the God of Islam. The God of Islam is a monad, single, single being, that is it. He is ultimate power, but he is not love. You see, before the creation of the world, if God is but one, If there is no triune being, there is nothing for God to love. Therefore, love is not his essence. Love is not who he is. But our God, the God of Christianity, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father loves the Son in eternity. And the Father loves the Spirit in eternity. And the Son and the Spirit love the Father. And the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father. They dwell in an indivisible point in eternity, the one supreme being, and enjoy this mutual love, mutual delight, mutual fellowship. God is love because God is triune. And here's the wonder of wonders. We read it a few moments ago in Ephesians chapter 1. The Father loved us before the foundation of the world. Here's the wonder of wonders. God sent the Son in time to reveal the Father's love. And he loved us. And he gave himself up for us. And the Father and the Son sent the Spirit in time to assure us of the Father's love. And that's precisely what we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, where Paul declares that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And so when God saves us and God brings us into his family, The triune God is bringing us into his eternal love, whereby the love with which the Father loves us and set it upon us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, he testifies to it by sending his Son in time to give himself for us and pay the penalty for our sins, and he assures us of it by now sending the Spirit into our hearts, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you know what that means, my friend? That means God's love for you as a Christian is not contingent on how you're feeling today. It doesn't matter what kind of week you had the past seven days. It means God's love for you isn't contingent on your circumstances, whether things are going well or things are going poorly. Because you see, God's love for you doesn't change. God's love for you isn't circumstantial. God's love for you is not contingent upon your performance. God's love for you is God's love for himself. And God has brought you into the fellowship of his love. By saving you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And sealing you with the Holy Spirit. Oh, Spurgeon, he tells the story. C.H. Spurgeon tells the story. This is going back into the 1800s of walking in the English countryside one day with a friend, and they came across this shed or barn or something like this, and there was a weather vane on top, and the weather vane, God is love. There it was. It was a blustery day, and so the weather vane was kind of spinning in the wind, and Charles Spurgeon just got this scowl on his face. I don't like that at all. God's love is unchanging. God's love is immutable. And yet the wind's blowing that thing here, there, and everywhere. And his friend just gently put his hand on his shoulder and said, Calm down, Charles, calm down. I think you've misunderstood the message. The message is simply this. Regardless of which way the wind blows, God is love. The truth does not change. It is who he is in his essential self. Why? Because he is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit, and what great love he has bestowed upon us in bringing us into his family and making us the recipients and the beneficiaries of that love. That is the first truth. Our God is triune. Here's the second truth that emerges from the text. Our God is sovereign. It's right there at the outset of the text, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come. By whose determination? By God's determination. He gave a promise, did he not, back in Genesis 3.15, concerning the seed of the woman and the Savior, the deliverer, who would come, the promised seed of the woman. And then he gave a promise to Abraham concerning his seed. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then he gave a promise to David concerning his seed, his son. I will set him upon your throne and he will rule for all eternity. And then he develops this promise concerning the seed, this coming savior, this coming deliverer. He develops it throughout the prophets and we learn that he's going to be a servant We learn that he's going to be this branch that springs from the root of Jesse. We learn that he's going to be this tremendous king. And the entirety of the Old Testament, human history as it's recorded there, it is all serving one purpose. It is to prepare for this promised deliverer. And all human events, the rising up of kings and their fall and their descent, and all that transpires among the greatest and the smallest and most insignificant, all of it is hurling headlong. His history is linear. It is not chaotic. It is linear. And it all moves towards this point of culmination by God's own determination, this King of kings and the Lord of lords, when the fullness of time had come. The end of the ages have come upon us, says Paul to the Corinthians. That all that God had promised, all of those prophecies, all of that prefiguring, everything going on in the Old Testament now finds its culmination in a historical event. God sent forth his Son. And God sent forth the Spirit of his Son. Oh, the sovereign reign and rule of our King, all times and seasons are in his hand. He governs all worlds, all beings, all events. He controls the particles in the beam of sunlight, the planets in faraway galaxies, and the smallest details in our lives and why my friend is that so encouraging? We comfort ourselves no matter what's going on in life. We comfort ourselves with the knowledge that there are no accidents. There are no rogue molecules in this universe. There is but one God, the only and blessed sovereign who rules and reigns unchallenged over the entire cosmos. You think of Jacob. I might, I might need your help here. Think back. Those of you familiar with the story of Jacob, and think of everything he went through, right? Some of it his own fault, right? But let's just cut him some slack. We'll speak well of Jacob. He had to flee from his own home, right? Remember that ordeal with Esau? And uh, forced to to run away, never saw his his mother again. And um, terrible ordeal. He ends up uh, in the home of Laban, remember, his uncle? And Laban treats him basically like a slave and works him to the bone and deceives him into marrying Leah, remember, after working seven years. And uh, Jacob ends up with two wives, ends up with uh, kids, but doesn't own anything. Slowly the Lord begins to bless him with his own possessions. Laban resents him. Laban tries to orchestrate circumstances so that he can take everything from him. Jacob has to flee in the dead of night. Laban pursues him. And I think Laban's intentions are ill towards Jacob. God preserves him. Jacob finally makes it back to his homeland. And they're back in the land of Canaan. What happens? Dinah, she's raped. His only daughter. Levi and Simeon. They were the ones involved in the bloodletting, weren't they? And the slaughter of the Canaanites. And then perhaps one of the most traumatic events of his life, Joseph. His cherished son by Rachel. Uh, Rachel dies. And then Joseph, what happens? Lost. From all he knows, killed by some ravaging wild animal. And here is what is fascinating. As Jacob takes stock of his life, he declares it somewhere around Genesis 50, somewhere in there, he declares these words as he looks back on his life, all this is against me. That's his assessment of life. All this is against me. All right, you got Jacob clearly in mind there, clearly in view. Now, you remember the story of Joseph? All right, Joseph, what what happens to Joseph? His brothers absolutely despise him, throw him in a pit when no one is looking. Some intend to kill him. They just want to do away with him right there and then. They end up selling him. He gets sold as a slave into Egypt. So there he is, a young man, teenager perhaps, separated from his family, now a stranger in a strange land falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, ends up languishing in a prison cell, forgotten in that prison cell, eventually makes it out of the prison cell. And so here is Joseph, ordeal upon ordeal upon ordeal. And as he takes stock, and as he evaluates his life circumstances, what does he declare? Do you remember Jacob's declaration? All this has come against me. What is Joseph's declaration? God meant it for good. Oh, my friend, where are you on that paradigm? On that continuum? Are you a Jacob? All this has come against me. Woe is me. No one has ever seen the trouble I've seen. I find myself aligning with Jacob far off, and then I care to admit, although I guess I just admitted it. Or are you with Joseph? I don't know how, and I don't fully understand it, but I have this certainty. God meant it for good. You know the difference between Jacob and Joseph? I think it's simply this, the extent to which we've taken to heart Romans 8, 28. We know, we know. That God works all things together for good To those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose That's where many of us stumble because his purpose is not to make us healthy happy and prosperous his purpose is to make us like Jesus Christ and all things work together for that good. Oh, what an encouraging truth. Friends, we do not need to know why things happen in life. Many times we don't. We don't need to know why things happen in life. All we need to know is who controls all things. That's it. That this triune being who has set his love upon us has a plan and purpose for his own glory that centers in my conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And as the internals of a clock look so confusing, the circumstances of my life might be downright bewildering, but I have this certainty that God is piecing it all together, bringing it all together, working it for my ultimate good. I don't know. Maybe maybe this is all you need to hear today. Let me just give you a verse. You can forget everything that's been said. I hope you won't to this point and ignore everything that's said later. Maybe all you need is this verse. Psalm 103, verse 14. Maybe this is it. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. Maybe that's all you need to hear today. This wonderful God knows our frame. He knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he is intimately acquainted with every facet of our lives. And he remembers that we are but dust. And he deals with us accordingly. And at times the circumstances might be downright unpleasant. And at times we might feel as though our shoulders are drooping and our knees are buckling and we can't take one more step in front of us. Was at times like these we must hold tenaciously to this wonderful truth that all seasons, all events, all things rest in the palm of our God. And he works them all ultimately for his glory and for our good. Here's the third truth coming out of the text. It is this. Our God is Father. Our God is Father. Yes, our God is triune. Amen. Yes, our God is sovereign. Praise him. And thirdly, our God is Father. Look at the sixth verse. We've received because you are sons. We've received adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God deals with us accordingly, and he sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Oh, please understand, this is not the natural condition of human beings. We sometimes hear people celebrating the fatherhood of God. And I guess in a sense, we can say, yes, he's the father of all creation because he's the source of all creation. But sadly, that's not usually what people mean when they speak of the fatherhood of God. What they mean by that, what the implication is, is this, that God is everyone's father, no matter the condition of their soul, no matter what they think about God. That's a fallacy. By nature, we're actually children of wrath. That's who we are. By salvation, we become children of God, and God becomes our Father. It's only through Jesus Christ that we have any claim upon God as Father, and it is only through Jesus Christ that this God makes any claim upon us as sons. He is our Heavenly Father to all who did receive Christ, who believed in His name. He gave the right, it's a right and it's a privilege, to become the children of God. And what Paul emphasizes in our verses is this, two tremendous blessings by way of encouragement. The first is this, we enjoy a present comforter, the Holy Spirit himself, the Spirit of God's Son, who has been sent into our hearts, by whom we now cry, Abba, Father. I read a little excerpt from Russell Moore earlier Let me read another to help us understand this. He's speaking from his own experience. Of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our son, one stands out above all the others. The place was filled with an eerie silence, despite there being cribs full of babies in every room. If you listen closely You could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth in their beds. They didn't cry because no one responded to their cries. That's dehumanizing in its horror. The first moment, the first moment I knew the boy had received us in some strange and preliminary way was the moment we walked out of the room after visiting him in the orphanage when he fell back into his crib and he cried. First time I'd ever heard him do it. Why? It was because for whatever reason he seemed to think that he would now be heard And for whatever reason, he no longer liked the prospect of being alone in the dark. That is where the Holy Spirit leads us. Oh, before he finds us, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're enslaved in bondage to our sin. We are in absolute darkness. Oh, but when the Father sends the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, we come alive. We take that first gasp, that first breath, and suddenly words arise from the pit of our very being. Words that would never have been uttered previously. Why? Because we now expect to be heard. And the words are what? Abba, Father, you have set your love upon me before the foundation of the world. You have declared, manifested, exemplified, magnified your love for me by sending your Son in time to pay the penalty for my sin upon Calvary's cross. And you've now sent the Spirit of your Son into my heart, whereby for the first time I'm actually alive, I've actually come to life. And for the first time in my life, I have the certainty that God Almighty will hear me. And I can come before the king of the universe, the entire cosmos, with this very simple word, Father. Knowing what? That he is now my God, and I am his adopted son. Oh, the encouragement that brings. When the Spirit of God has entered in, and by means of the word of God, perhaps even for someone this morning right here, or someone at home watching, As the word is proclaimed, the word is read, the spirit of God comes. He illumines the written word, the proclaimed word. And we hear who God is and it makes sense for the first time. And we get it the depth of our sin and and that we face a lost eternity. It is appointed unto man to die once and after this the judgment. And it grips us with fear. And then it really comes alive, the beauty of the Lord Jesus, and and that we have this mediator, fully God, fully man, hanging upon Calvary's cross, suffering on my behalf, satisfying God's offended justice, and paying the penalty for my sin. And we hear that oh, whoever confesses with his mouth, Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart. God raised him from the dead. He shall be saved. And all of a sudden these truths come alive right? This isn't mere nonsense anymore. This isn't simply something I've heard a hundred times. Ho oh, hum, how boring is this? Have you got anything new for me? You don't need anything new. This is it. It's the wonder of wonders. And it comes alive and it takes hold. What's happening? That is the Spirit of God being poured out in my heart whereby the word of God now dwells richly in me, and it comes alive, the mind understands it, the heart is inclined to it, and what is my only reaction, oh, Abba, Father? And I claim this wonder of wonders, that God Almighty is mine, and I belong to him. Oh, what an encouraging blessing. And here's the second, but quickly, not only do we enjoy a present comforter, but we enjoy a future inheritance. So we have there in verse 7, right? We are now heirs, heirs of God himself. Paul transitions. It's fascinating there in the seventh verse. There's a definite transition. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you're reading from the NIV, you won't catch it. I don't catch it in the English, but it's there in the original. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave but a son. The word isn't plural, you. He's been using the plural to this point. He's not using the plural now. What does he do? He individualizes it. You, 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 you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Oh, the wonderful privileges that belong to me now. That the Spirit of God has taken hold of me, bringing me into the family of God. I will inherit eternal life. We don't have time to get. Too late. I will inherit eternal life. A glorified body and a glorified soul. I will inherit this world. It's going to be renewed, renovated, regenerated. But blessed are the meek. Why? they shall inherit the earth. And even far exceeding and eclipsing these, I will inherit God himself. And I will behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And he will be all in all to me. Wiping away every tear. Removing every anxiety satisfying every longing as I am now lost in holy wonder, a future inheritance. Oh, my friends, we need to regularly savor the sweetness of this single statement. God is our Father. Here is stability amid societal decay, financial woes, health problems, broken relationships, and raging storms. Here is strength for enduring difficulty, trust for facing uncertainty, and peace for overcoming anxiety. Here is assurance that God welcomes me, a penitent sinner, because of Christ, a sufficient Savior. And I can do no better than this than to conclude with just a few words from an old one. Some of you will remember this one. Most of you, I pray, behold what love, what boundless love the Father hath bestowed on sinners lost that we should be now called the sons of God. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we revel and delight in this love this day. Pray that you would make it alive to us, that it captures our minds and captures our hearts. We pray for any unbelievers present or watching, listening from home, that this might be the day of salvation whereby you convince them of their sin, the sole sufficiency of Christ's atoning work. And your willingness to welcome sinners into your family through Christ. And lavish upon them such wonderful and eternal privileges. Father, we pray it for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray it for the good of your people here. We pray it for the furtherance of your glory. Asking it all in Christ's matchless name. Amen.